But we're in Romans uh, 6, and this morning I just want to do a little, we're closing off the, the, the chapter here, and uh, we've, been, we've been looking at the idea of our new life in Christ, and at the end of Romans 6, basically he tells us simply that we are going to serve someone. And uh, he points out to us that uh, who that is. And there's only two options, and we'll get into that. But I just want to say in opening that I'm very appreciative to be the pastor here in a church where the primary interest of God's people is not uh, programs, <laughs> it's not the music, it's not little sermonettes to help you feel better each week and tug at your heart and your emotions, but rather your heart's desire, as is mine, is to learn um, and to know more and more about God's inerrant, infallible, authoritative, divine, holy word. And, and that's what uh, I just wanted to um, think of that as, as we continue in our book uh, study through Romans. And some people say, well, how long is this going to take? I don't know, but we've been in there for 48 weeks so far, and we'll continue. But we come to a text today that's, uh, as has been the last couple of weeks, kind of difficult to understand, and it reminds me of, of what Peter wrote in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 16. He said this, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our, our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as do the other as they do the other scriptures. And so this morning as we continue in our our text here in Romans chapter 6 we'll be looking basically at Romans 15 to 18 but I want to read uh, the entire uh, text for us all the way to the end of the chapter. So follow along in your Bibles Romans 6 <laughs> verse 15. All right. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lewdness, lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God in is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Most of you remember the song that Bob Dylan wrote several decades ago now, hard to believe. Uh, gotta serve somebody. And he wrote a verse that says this. But you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes indeed you're gonna have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord. But you're going to have to serve somebody. That's really what Paul is talking about. I don't know where Dylan got his mind for that, his idea for that song, whether it was from the words of our Lord or the words of Paul, but obviously he got them from somewhere. And in John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus said this Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. So all men who live a life of committing sin are slaves to that sin. That's what the scriptures teach. In fact, every person 
we've learned as we've been going through Romans, every person who comes into this world is under the tyranny of sin. It's under the power of sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the Word says. That means sin controls their thoughts, sin controls their words, sin controls their actions. And Paul says here that either you're a slave of sin or you are a slave of, what, obedience or righteousness or God. He says that in verses 16, 18, 19, and 22 of Romans 6. And so a lot of times unbelievers make the mistake of thinking that somehow, well, they're free. <laughs> you know, they're free. When you, when you tell them, well, you need to come to Christ and commit your life to Christ. No, 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 I'm free. I'm my own guy now. No, you're not. You're not. If you're not in Christ, you're in sin. And if you're in sin, you're a slave to that sin. Over in 2 Peter chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, he writes this. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. It says, They promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Now, we know that that verse isn't talking about losing salvation. That's impossible, as we're going to look at today a little bit and next week. But once you've been, been exposed to the gospel, once you've been exposed to the truth, it's your responsibility to respond to that truth. You may think, no, 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 that, the Christian life, it seems so restrictive. It seems so, you know, boy, you got to do this, you got to do that. It just, I don't, I don't want that. Well, your life right now is restricted, beloved. If you're not in Christ, you're restricted to sin. The only thing you can do is sin. And that's what the Bible tells us, very clear. And so God has, in his wonderful provision through Christ, he's freedom given us freedom from that bondage. He's freed us from sin. And he made us slaves of righteousness. Just like Bob Dylan said, you've got to serve somebody. Paul says the same thing. And this comes down to basically a battle of the will. You hear the word, oh, you know, don't you believe that, that man has a free will today? I can do whatever I want. I have a free will. Well, if you can show me that in Scripture, I'd love to agree with you. C.H. Spurgeon said this, Free will I have heard of often, but I have never seen it. I have met with will and plenty of it, but it has either been led captive by sin or held in the blessed bonds of his grace. See, so the choice is not, beloved, should I give up my freedom so I could submit myself to God? We, we falsely think that's what the choice is before we come to Christ. That's not the choice. The choice is this. Should I serve sin or should I serve God? You're going to serve somebody, one of the other. And Paul tells us, Here, basically, in our text, either you're a slave to sin, and this is in your outline there, resulting in death, or you are a slave of obedience, resulting in righteousness. Those are the two choices. There's no gray, there's no in-between. You can't have one foot in, one foot out. And so, as you read through Romans 6, the text we just read, clearly you can see that Paul is using an illustration of slavery. To get a point across. 
The word slave or enslaved occurs eight times here in verses 15 to 23. And basically, in every verse, there except uh, 15, 21, and, and 22, I think. And so when you stop and think about it, this is his, his theme. And he says there in verse 17, you were once slaves of sin. He says it again in verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin. What's he talking about? Before you were in Christ, before you committed your life to Christ. And then he says all the way at the, the end there, uh, or verse 21, he says the ultimate end of being a slave to sin, in verse 21, for the end of those things is death. And then in verse 23, the beginning of the verse, he says the wages of sin is what? Is death. I mean, it's, it's not rocket science. To be a slave of sin is to die. Sin ultimately kills. Physically and spiritually. And when you think about it, what it means to be a slave to sin, when you stop, I mean, you know, I don't think anybody likes to be a slave to anything. I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning, oh, I just wish I was a slave today. Of whatever. I can't wait to get to the, the, the office and be a slave to my boss. Man, it just makes my day to have to do whatever he says, whenever he wants. And da, da, da. Nobody likes that. It just goes against our very nature. Well, Dr. Guthrie penned out some words about sin, and I want to read them for you. And he gives a description of sin that is just right on. It's just, it's very meaty, but it's also very, uh, you can just relate to it. And here's what he says. He says, sin is a debt, a burden, a thief, a sickness, a leprosy, a plague, a poison, a serpent, a sting. Everything that man hates, sin is. A load of curses and calamities beneath whose crushing, intolerable pressure the whole creation groans. Who is the undertaker that digs man a grave? Who is the painted temptress that steals his virtue? Who is the murderess that destroys his life? Who is the sorceress that first deceives and then damns his soul? The answer, sin. Who with icy breath blights the fair blossoms of youth? Who breaks the hearts of parents? Who breaks old men? Who brings old men gray hairs with sorrow to the grave? Sin. Who changes gentle children into vipers? Tender mothers into monsters? And their fathers into worse than Herod's? The murderers of their own innocence, sin. Who cast the apple of discard, discord on the household hearts? Who lights the torch of war and bears it blazingly over the trembling lands? Who by division in the church rends Christ's seamless robe, sin? Who is this Delilah? that sings the Nazarite asleep and delivers up the strength of God into the hands of the uncircumcised. Who, winning smile on her face, honey flattered, flattery on her tongue, stands in the door to offer the sacred rites of hospitality and when suspicion sleeps, treacherously pierces our temples with a nail. What fair siren is this who, seated on a rock by the deadly pool, smiles to deceive, sings to lure, kisses to betray, and flings her arms around our neck to leap with us into perdition? Sin. Who turns the soft and greatest heart to stone? Who hurls reason from her lofty throne and impels sinners Mad as the gathering swine to run down the precipice into the lake of fire, sin. What a wonderful description of sin. John MacArthur in his commentary wrote this, Sin, that terrible, life-wretching, soul-damning reality which clings like incurable cancer to the human breast and ultimately devastates sin to which men are enslaved. And men cry to be free from sin, but they cannot. 
They run to flee its guilt, but they cannot find relief. Why is that? Because men, humankind, is a slave to sin. And what's so glorious about this passage, if you look at verse 18 with me just for a second, look at what it says. If there's one thing God could give us, a greatest gift that God could give us, verse 18, having been what? Set free from sin. What a glorious thing. You can't do this on your own. Verse 22, he says, now that you have been set free from sin. Describes our state in Christ. It describes who we are in Christ, our position. That sin which devastates and destroys and kills. God has given us a gift through the Lord Jesus Christ that we can be free from sin. Free from its penalty. Free from its power. Free from its presence, ultimately. I mean, what a wonderful thing. That should give us comfort. That should give us joy. That's why Christ has saved us. To free us from the power and the penalty and ultimately the presence of sin. Now we've been looking in our study and we've been looking at how God has been doing this. And we looked at a couple terms. The doctrine of justification. That one time, that one time act of God when he declares us righteous even though we're not. Because of the righteousness of Christ given to us, he looks at us Sinful human beings that says, I declare you righteous. And then we've been looking at sanctification, which is the process of God making us holy. It's not a one-time thing. It's a process. God has left us here on this earth as Christians, and we don't live perfect lives. We're not sinless people. We sin probably every day in thought or deed. But through that process, God is forming us and fashioning us more like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the process of sanctification. And so chapters 3, 4, and 5 of Romans up to this point has showed us basically that this is what God has done. He's declared us righteous and he's in the process of sanctifying us, making us holy. In the first half of chapter 6 up to verse 14, it tells us how he made us holy. And the second half of chapter 6 is basically to tell us that we are free from sin that once enslaved us. And so he's looking at the same thing. And so some of this is going to sound familiar because he's saying the same thing in these two sets of verses. He's just saying it in a different way. In the first half of the chapter, he used the illustration of what? Us being united, right, with Christ. He said, since you're a Christian, since you've committed your life to Christ, you're one with Christ. You've been, you've been uh, buried, died with Christ. You've been buried with Christ. You've been raised to newness of life to walk with Christ. That's what he tells us in the first 14 verses. He gives us that illustration. And the second half of the verse, he almost says, well, you know what, I, I don't know you got it yet. i gotta, I got to share something else with you. I want to give you another illustration. And he uses the illustration of slavery. And he says, you know what, not only have you died in Christ and rose with Christ and now are walking in newness of life with Christ, that old self is dead, it's buried, it's gone, but you've also become a slave to God. And in doing so, the slavery to sin, which was your old life, is broken. It's over. And this really drives home the point that you are, as a new creation in Christ, you're not some schizophrenic Christian walking around saying, well, who am I going to listen to? The old self or the new self? And they have this war going on. We've been talking about that. That's what a lot of people are taught. But the very characteristic and the nature of slavery is that you have one master. You don't have two. So if you are saved, if you are a Christian, you are a slave to God. That's clearly what the text says. And that slavery 
of the old nature to the old sin has been broken. It's been severed. You're no longer under its dominion, under its power. And so he wants us to see that very clearly. So first he says, you know what? I want you to give this illustration. You're one with Christ and you've been... You've died with Christ, you've been buried, you were raised, newness of life. Therefore, you know what? You you, you have, for the first opportunity in your life, the ability to live a life that's a life of righteousness. You don't have to sin any longer. Not that you won't, but you don't have to. And he says, in the second half, I want to give you another illustration. Not only are you united with Christ, but you're a slave now to God. And I think that that's important to understand because a truly regenerated person, someone who is truly born again, cannot continue in the same old pattern of sinning that was characteristic before they came to Christ. It's impossible. There has to be a change. There has to be a transformation. Why? Because as we've talked the last couple weeks, salvation is not the addition It's not addition. It's not God saying, okay, now you have a new spirit inside you, and so the old one's still there, and they can fight together, and and that's what salvation is. It's just, you know, kind of really messing your life up now. No, that's not what it is. It's transformation. God takes our heart, God takes our soul, and he recreates it to be new. And he says, the old one is dead, it's been buried, it's gone. Now you are new In Christ, old things have what? Passed away. Everything has become new. And so, because we're no longer in the same relationship to sin as we were before we came to Christ, because we've died with Christ and we've risen with Christ. So here in the second half of this chapter, he says, now you have a new master. You have a new master. You're, 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 not, you're not free to do whatever you want as a Christian. Just like you weren't free to do whatever you want as a non-believer. See, Satan's got people duped into thinking that, oh, you know, the Christian life is so restrictive and boy, I just want my freedom and I want to do whatever I can do. But if I come to Christ, then I'm giving up control of my life. Hey, you know what? Here's, here's a thought for you. You're under someone's control right now. You're not the master of your own destiny. The Bible says you're under the control of sin if you, if you have not trusted Christ for your salvation. You don't have a free will. I mean, the last time I checked, somebody that's enslaved to somebody is not free. And that's exactly what it says. And so we have to be careful when we think in these terms, the truly justified, redeemed, born-again, saved individual is going to have a different relationship to sin than they had before. It can't continue as it was. And that's why he uses the word obedience here. Obedience, obedient, obey, it happens about four times in our text. And so whose slave are you? Who are you going to serve? That's the question we're asking this morning. Do you obey sin or do you obey God? Are you going to live a life of sin that leads ultimately to death? Are you going to live a life serving God that ultimately leads to life, eternal life? Well, the first point here in our outline is if you think that being under grace means that you are free to sin... You do not understand God's grace. Look at what he says in verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Looks familiar, doesn't it? All the way back in verse 1, he asks the same question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So what's Paul doing? He's answering their questions that are in their heads. He's speaking to these readers, and in chapter 5, he got done talking about, hey, you're, you're, you're now in Christ, you're out of Adam, you're under God's grace. In verse 20 and 21 of chapter 5, he says, The law came to increase the trespass, where, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So he knew the people that were hearing him were going to say, oh, that makes sense. If, 
if, if we sin and God's grace is given to us and that honors God, then let's sin some more and God can grace us more with his grace and then he'll get more glory. Very self-serving mindset. And then he's answering that same question in verse 15. And it basically goes back to the whole idea of the law. Because the Jews were thinking, hey, we're under the law. We've got to obey the law. And Jesus came and said, no. You know, what's the law in your heart? You know, you may be doing all these external things, but what's going on in your heart? So Jesus used verses and, and kind of pointed out to them that, hey, you know, you, you say don't commit adultery. But I say if you look at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery. Well, they were blown away by that. They thought, whoa, wait a minute. You know, who hasn't done that? And he confronted what we know today and even back then is what we call legalism in a very real sense. And so he says to the, the, the question there, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? In other words, if we don't have a bunch of do's and don'ts, then why can't we just do whatever? Because we're under God's grace. And look at his answer. It's the same thing in verse 1. By no means. It's the same answer. No, 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 no. There's no way you could think that way. A Christian would not think that way. And someone who's been converted, someone who's been transformed by God's grace will not conclude that. Oh, God saved me? Oh, okay, and he's forgiven me of all my sins? Well, then good. I'm going to go out and just have a blast. Do all kinds of sin because I'm forgiven. I'm still going to heaven. What's the difference? It's almost a, a fatalistic kind of mentality. Those same people have the idea of, you know, when you talk about election and you talk about God choosing us who will be saved before the foundation of the world, which the Bible teaches clearly almost on every page. But the person who's fatalistic would look at that and go, okay, well, if God's got it all worked out, then I guess I'm not going to do nothing. I'm not going to pray. Why? Because he knows what he's going to do. He knows what the words are before I even come out of my mouth. So who cares? You know, why pray for Uncle Joe or Uncle Bob or whatever? I mean, God knows whether he's going to get saved or not. My prayers aren't going to matter at all. What's that? That's a fatalistic attitude. And it leads to a wrong conclusion. The opposite of that is the attitude that says somehow we save people. <laughs> That we go out and somehow we got to make them say a prayer or raise their hand or do something. And then if they do that, then, hey, glory to God, they're saved next. If they don't live for Jesus anymore, who cares? They said the prayer. That's all that counts, the sinner's prayer. That's nowhere in Scripture. I don't ever see Jesus telling his followers, here, pray this prayer. And then, okay, great. Now, no, <laughs> that's not how it works. But we've dumbed it down to just that kind of simplistic attitude. And so when someone says, hey, I've come to Christ and I've been converted, what do we do? Oh, great. Well, let's get baptized. Let's, let's put you into discipleship and everything. You know what my attitude is sometimes? Let's wait and see. You're telling me you're saved. I don't know. I don't have a machine that you can stand in front of that will x-ray you and say, yep, there he is, the Holy Spirit right in there. This is a genuine convert. You know, a C doesn't appear on your forehead once you're saved. It's saying that you're a Christian. It doesn't happen that way. It's not experiential. So the only way we can know is to see whether or not it's genuine. And how do you know? You have to let it kind of pan out. That's why when someone comes to Christ, we take them through a Bible study. We begin to teach them the basic things of Christ. You know, if two weeks into the study, they're not interested anymore, that's your answer. They're not converted. So you've got to redo your efforts, and you've got to go back and say, wait, do you really understand the commitment that you made? And more than not, usually they don't. So the wrong conclusion here would be, let's go sin a lot so we can get a lot of God's grace. And that's directly an answer to verse, basically, 14 there. 
when he says, you're not under law, but under grace. So they concluded, hey, if we're not under the law, then what's the big deal? So you don't sin so that grace may abound. Or in this case, you don't sin because grace has replaced the law or the do's and don'ts. So he reminds them there may it never be. No, that's not possible. You can't even think that way. But you have to remind ourselves that there's those two extremes. There's some people that still, as Christians, want to live by the law. They're legalists. And they think certain things need to happen the way they think they need to happen. And, and one thing about a legalist, somebody who's in the legalistic thinking, is you can always tell because they don't focus on the sins of the heart. They focus on the exterior things, maybe the way you dress or what you do or all those kind of things. They judge the outward sins of someone that can easily be judged. But they fail to leave out such things as pride or lack of love. And the Pharisees, really, that's what Jesus had to do. The Pharisees and the, 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 the Judaizers of Jesus' day were the leading opponents or proponents of this false, legalistic, superficial spirituality. I mean, there's some people that think that, boy, you know, because they come to church, that somehow... You know, they're blessed. And everybody else should be blessed because they're there. I mean, it's ridiculous. And to them, if they were honest with themselves, it's just to simply, oh, i got to go to church. You know, if I don't go, I'll look bad. So I'll just check it off. You know, I've often said this. If you don't have a desire to come and to learn and to understand God's word, why would you come? Now, I get it. If you're not a Christian yet and you're curious and you want to hear some things, that's fine. You're welcome here. But I'm speaking to believers. Why wouldn't you just stay home and watch the ball game or sleep in or do whatever? Hopefully, you want to be here. Hopefully, you understand what the Bible says when it says, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some. I mean, you understand that. And so that's, that's one aspect of it, the legalistic side. And the other side is like all grace. It's just, hey, we're under grace, so sin doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. And as soon as you point out a sin in someone's life, oh, you're judging me, you know, to have you heard of grace. See, that's the other. The whole free grace kind of, you know, super grace, abundant grace mentality of people. They live just freely and, and not for Christ. And think that somehow, well, their sins are forgiven, so it makes no difference. And that leads to further sin. And it's not a good situation. So you have legalism on one side, and you have licentiousness on the other side. And it's the same side of the operating principle of the flesh. One is given to a bunch of rules and regulations. The other one is given over to sin, thinking that somehow grace will will cover that. Legalists, they act in the flesh take pride in their religious practices, condemn those who don't match up to their standards of righteousness. And they usually end up congratulating themselves on their own performance. And they imagine somehow that by keeping the law, by doing certain things, they're going to commend themselves to God. But he's operating in the flesh. And the Bible says whatever's of the flesh is what? Sin. He's not examining his heart. That's why it's important to understand when you come to ministry, when you come to serve, you've got to ask yourself, why am I doing this? Why, why am I serving in Sunday school? Why am I serving in the nursery? Why am I helping out in the fellowship time? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing that? Is it just so people can see me? Is it so people can pop their head in the kitchen and say, Oh, wonderful spread today. Great job. Does that kind of give you kudos for the day and you walk away going, Oh, I did my job? I mean, is that the reason? 
See, we have, to, we have to answer that. We have to honestly answer those questions. Why do we teach a Bible study? Is it to show other people how much we know? And we're all susceptible to those temptations, those flaws in our flesh. But God's grace is opposed to that, beloved. And that's why he says there may it never be. If we've responded to the good news of God's grace, that God freely justifies the ungodly through faith alone apart from any works, then you know what? We will hate the sin that put our Savior on the cross. We won't be running to it at every opportunity we have. Because we understand that now we're identified with Him. That we're one with Christ. So we haven't... Paul's saying here, you know, I haven't turned you loose because God put a new nature in you. You're a new person. You're not the same old person. And that new life now manifests itself through obedience to Christ, not disobedience. And yet, on the other hand, in verse 19, he says, lawlessness is the mark of the slave of sin. Lawlessness. Righteousness is the mark of the one who has received God's grace. So if you want to test yourself, you can test yourself this way. If you think that being under God's grace means that you are free to sin, (laughs) and that you can just shrug it off and say, no big deal, you don't understand God's grace. If motivated by God's love and grace in giving His Son, you now hate and fight with your sin and strive to be more obedient, then you understand God's grace. That's really what Paul says in the next chapter, right? He's saying, oh, wretched man that I am. You know, the thing that I hate doing, that's, that I do. And the thing I want to do, I don't end up doing. That's the struggle of our fleshly body, of sin. And all of us go through that. We're not talking about sinless perfection here. We're talking about desires of the heart. Titus 2.11 tells us that God's grace instructs us or trains us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Paul wants to make sure that we understand that the proper result of God's grace is to make us slaves of righteousness, not just lawlessness. Second point, the only options are two. This, are you... Uh, Do you give yourself to be a slave to sin, resulting in death? Or do you give yourself to be a slave to obedience or Christ, resulting in righteousness? That's what he says there in verse 16. Do you not know that you have these two? You're going to be a slave to somebody. Which one is it going to be? In that culture, sometimes a man had to sell himself into slavery because of financial problems, financial difficulties. They had no way out, so they would actually sell themselves willingly to be a slave of somebody so that at least they could get some sustenance, they could have a roof over their head and some food and some clothes. And once you did that, once you sold yourself, you were a slave of the one that you were sold to. You couldn't say, well, no, 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 I don't want to work on Fridays. That's not part of the deal. No, you're the, you're, the, you're the slave. You do whatever the master says. You had to obey him. And what Paul's point here in the text is, is not so much that a slave had to obey his master. That was a given. <laughs> That's just basic understanding of what slavery is. But rather that the master you obey shows whose slave you are. See, that's the key. We're in a group of people. Some of us are masters and some of us are slaves. And my master says, hey, get over here and give me a cup of coffee. Do you think all the slaves are going to run to my master? No. I'm going to go. Why? Because he's my master. The other slaves will listen to their masters. And that's what this point is. Is that the slave basically is, is going to listen to whom they're, who they're serving. 
If you obey sin, it shows that you're a slave of sin. Which ultimately leads, the text says, to death. Not a good outcome. If you obey God, on the other hand, it shows that you're his slave, resulting in righteousness and eternal life. Now, if somehow there's a transaction and another master buys you, (laughs) and you're no longer the slave to this master, but this master, then who are you going to listen to? You're going to listen to the new master. That's the idea. Who are you going to listen to as a Christian? Are you going to listen to sin? Are you going to continue to listen to sin? Is it going to continue to dominate your life? Once again, we're not talking about sinning here and there. We're talking about sin as a way of life. Sin as a desire. Sin as your master. So you stop and you say, well, wait. You're talking a lot about obedience. And he uses the word here because he wants us to understand that we're not under the law. but we're under grace. But he still uses the word almost personified as a new master. Either you're a slave of obedience or a slave to sin. And the reason he does that, he wants to make it clear that not being under the law does not in any way imply that you are free to sin. That's what he wants them to understand. Just because you're not under The law, that doesn't mean you just go do whatever you want. Being under grace means that we present ourselves as slaves of obedience to God. You say, well, if we're saved by grace, what does it matter? Are you saying that if we don't obey, then we'll lose our salvation? No, because salvation, obedience is not a means to salvation. You're not saved because you obey. Hopefully you understand that. Your salvation is not a means of salvation. It's basically a result of your salvation. If our salvation was based upon our obedience, we'd all be in hell. Right? And so slavery leads, the slavery to sin leads to death. Slavery to obedience leads leads to righteousness. Um, we're not saved by our obedience to a bunch of commands, but rather we are saved by faith that results in a life of obedience. That's what Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 says. Now, a lot of Christians, unfortunately, today in, in the church believe that somehow they're, they're in between those two. They would say, well, you know, I'm not really a, a slave of sin, but it would probably be a stretch to say that I'm a slave to obedience, too. So I'm, I'm kind of in both camps. i got my foot in both, you know, both camps. And Paul says there's no way that can happen. There's no way. It's very clear. He says either Christ is your master and you obey him, or sin is your master and you obey it. He doesn't give any gray area. There's no middle ground. I remember... When I was younger, we had, used to have a boat, and we'd go up to the Susquehanna River. My brother had this jet boat, and we'd go up there, and we had an island and kind of camped out all summer. And I remember one time we were on the dock, and I was standing kind of on the boat, on a foot step there on the boat, and on the dock. And apparently my brother didn't know that I was standing not in the boat. And he starts to take off. Not fast, luckily, or I would have probably been split in two. And so, you know, as it starts to go, I'm thinking, whoa, 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 and I'm yelling, you know. And I ended up falling in the water. And the reason was I, I could not keep my foot on the dock and in the boat at the same time. It just wouldn't work. And it's the same way in the Christian life. Okay, you can't have your, your foot be a slave of sin, and be a slave to Christ. It doesn't work that way. Jesus taught that. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve what? Two masters. Basic understanding. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve. In this case, he's talking about God and money. 
In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, Jesus said there's only two gates. Only two gates. The narrow gate that leads to life, the broad gate that leads to destruction. A little later on in chapter 7, Matthew, he says there's two types of trees. There's a good tree that bears good fruit, and there's a bad tree that bears bad fruit. He goes on in chapter 7, he says there are two kinds of builders. They build two kinds of houses. The wise builder builds on the rock. The foolish builder builds on the sand. The wise builder represents those who hear Jesus' words and obey them. The foolish builder hears Jesus' words, but they do not obey them. Jesus never said, and there's this kind of builder in between, you know. He, he does good on the foundations, but boy, his, his work above ground is just right. No, he said there's, there's one or the other. There's not a tree that's in between the good and the bad. There's not a third path. There's not a third gate. And you can simply tell who a person serves, beloved, by his behavior, by his actions. Because those who live in sin are slaves to sin. Those who live in obedience are slaves of Jesus Christ. Those who are the slaves of sin are not under God's grace. And they're heading for eternal death, eternal hell, eternal destruction, eternal judgment. Those who are slaves of Christ have tasted of His grace. They've grown in righteousness. They're heading for eternal life. You have to ask yourself this question. Are you a slave of sin or are you a slave of Christ? How does a person move from being a slave of sin to being a slave to God or a slave of righteousness? One who comes to God through Christ and says this, I take you as my Savior My master and my Lord. He's not only ethically bound, but he's also recreated so that he can obey. In other words, it's not us saying, Oh, okay, let's see, you know, Buddha or Christ. I think I'll choose, I'll, I'll choose Christ, you know. Okay, so what do I do now? I commit my life. Okay, yeah, Jesus, I commit my life. And boy, I've made this wonderful commitment to Christ. And, and now I've got to live by this new, these new rules and whatever. That's not what he's saying. That's not what he's talking about here. He's saying because you're a slave to righteousness, okay, this is, this is what you have to do. You're you're recreated to be a slave to righteousness. This isn't your choice. At some point in life, I didn't look at my life and go, well, a slave to sin, a slave to Christ, uh, let's see, eternal burning in hell or eternal bliss in heaven. Ah, I think I'll pick this one. I never did that. God came and basically open my eyes to the truth. To the simple fact that, you know what, you can do all you want, Steve. You can be as good as you want to be. You're never going to be good enough. And until you come to the point in your life where you're willing to cry out to me, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me, save me, do whatever you have to do to me. I don't want to go to hell. That's the heart that God can change. That's the heart he will change. Because you've exhausted all human effort. That's what has to happen before you're saved. You have to exhaust all human effort. Because it's not about just obeying. That doesn't save you. That's a result of your salvation. So many Christians have this wrong. They think that if they only do this, this, and this, somehow that's going to lead to salvation. And that's not the way we're saved. If you have any question about that, you don't understand Ephesians 2, which says that we're created in Christ Jesus, what? Onto good works, which God has beforehand 
kind of put out, He ordained that we should what? Walk in them as believers. So it's a result of our salvation. Salvation is on to good works. And so Paul's dealing with this. He's dealing here with a, a state, a fact. Uh, not something, he's not telling us to be a, a slave to Christ. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if you are in Christ, you are a slave to Christ. You don't have any choice. Lest you leave here today if you're not in Christ and say, well, the pastor said I have to become a slave to Christ. So I'm just going to try to will my way. No, it's not going to work. What has to happen? You have to be transformed. You have to be changed by God's divine power. That's the only people that are saved. You say, well, are you saying that everybody who is saved is transformed by God's power? That's exactly what I'm saying. If they're not transformed, they're not saved. It's real simple. And that's what the first 14 verses showed us. It showed us this transformation through the figure of death and resurrection. And now he's saying, I've got to show this picture to you again through the analogy of slavery. And actually, in chapter 7 of Romans, he does the whole thing over again with the picture of marriage. <laughs> and we'll get to that. But he wants us to understand that we are a new creation in Christ. This isn't just something that we have to do, we have to obey in order to get... That's not what he's saying. And even though we are in the presence of our bodies, even though we still possess the flesh, even though we can only experience this imperfect holiness that we have now in our our Christian lives, our desire is to obey. We must obey. Colossians chapter 1 verse 21 says this, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He has now reconciled in his body the flesh of his uh, in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you what holy and blameless and above reproach in him if indeed you continue in the faith stable steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven of which I Paul became a minister You know, a lot of people, unfortunately, today believe that certain people are saved when their life does not depict salvation. So they've relegated them to this category called, well, they're a carnal Christian. Okay. I don't see that category. I mean, other times as Christians, we listen to our flesh or, yeah, we do the wrong thing. Definitely. But as a way of life, our desire should be to obey him, to serve him. That's what we're called to do. And I think that mentality comes from the whole evangelistic thrust of the 50s onward in our country. Where the whole message was not that you have to become undone, but somehow if you just understand that, 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 that Jesus is the Savior, and somehow if you just pray this prayer and you make Him your Lord, then, you know, you can come to Jesus as your Savior, and then you straighten out all the Lordship stuff later. Some people would say, that sounds like, and this is kind of a Christianese little word that people use, Lordship salvation. Are you preaching Lordship salvation? I'm not only preaching it, that's what the Word of God teaches. How, what other salvation would there be? I mean, either Jesus is Lord or He's not. You can call it whatever you want. But you can't come to Jesus as your Savior and then say, well, I'll make Him my Lord later. I'm just going to continue to do what I want to do for a couple years until I get, sow my wild oats and, you know, I'll go to church and, and live like the devil the rest of the week because I'm, you know, I'm not really there yet. And Well, you're not saved. If that's your attitude, you're not saved. You need to come back and you need to kind of refocus on your whole business of salvation. 
Forget about the discipleship. Forget about the theology. Forget about everything else. You have to come to the end of yourself and realize that, you know what? You are lost in your sin and you are going to come under the judgment of a holy God one day in a place called hell unless you come to Christ. That's the bottom line. Paul doesn't leave any wiggle room there. Well, the third point here, the only way that you can change from being a slave of sin to being a slave of righteousness is for God to free you from your sin by changing your heart. That's what he says in verse 17 to 18. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became what? Obedient in action? No. Obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And you were freed from sin and became slaves of righteousness. He describes this change that happens to someone who puts their trust, their faith in Christ. And these changes happen to everyone who are saved. They're radical changes. They're not minor changes. I mean, when you talk about being a slave to sin, and then you become obedient from the heart to sound teaching and a slave to righteousness, that's a radical change. From being in bondage to sin to being a slave and free to serve God in righteousness. That's a radical change. There was a change in what? In who their master was. There was a change in the lordship. Before, it was Satan's dominion. It was Satan's power over them. It was sin that held them captive. But now as they come into Christ and they've trusted in Christ and the work of Christ, that God has placed them under God's dominion of righteousness through Christ. It's a change of thinking. All of a sudden, they're willing to submit to biblical truth. That happens to everyone who comes to Christ. First desire for me when I became a Christian was, well, what does this book say? I've got to figure it out. So I had an old King James Bible, and I'd take it to college, and I started reading it. And the Holy Spirit gave me some wisdom, and with the help of a little local Baptist church, God started to put the pieces of the puzzle together for me. But there was a desire there was a change of will. All of a sudden, it didn't matter what I wanted to do. You know, I wanted to be a police officer. I wanted to go finish my degree in criminology. All of a sudden, God changed everything up on me. I didn't know where it was going. I didn't have a desire to be a pastor at that point. I just knew that I wanted to know more about God and, and this new thing called salvation. And, and I was kind of ticked off the Catholic Church. So I thought, well, I'm going to go become a priest. And then I'll expose everything that the church teaches that's not biblical. And a local pastor said, that's probably not the best idea for you to do that. That would be kind of deceptive at best. Maybe you need to go to a Bible college. And I was like, what's that? And he gave me some things. And I ended up at a college. And God worked through many years of just saying, here, just follow me step by step. There was no big plan. Because there was a change of will. For the first time, I just want to do what God wanted me to do. But that's the move to... Indio, California, in 130-degree weather in a place where golf is God, and I hate golf, playing golf anyway, in that kind of heat. I mean, you know, I was there for five years. I never played a round of golf. Down there, Palm Springs area. Went to the driving range a couple times, but... Why? Because there was a change of will. There was a change of desire. Salvation, first point here under this, is neither a human project nor a joint human divine project get that through your head rather salvation is of the lord see slaves of sin are not able to free themselves by their own efforts As a matter of fact slaves of sin don't often realize that they're slaves of anyone <laughs> so they usually resent being told that they're a slave to sin but that's what the bible tells us Jesus even told the Jews in, in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. And their response in verse 8 of uh, John there, John chapter 8, verse 33, We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet enslaved, been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? How short-sighted they were, right? They'd just been enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years. And they had the guts to stand there in front of the Lord and say, what are you talking about, slave? We've never been enslaved to anyone. 
See how blinding sin is? Jesus goes on and he makes it clear what he was talking about, slavery to sin, to be freed from that cruel master that the son would have to make you free. And when he says there in verse 18 of chapter 6, freed from sin, he uses a verb that's of the passive nature in the original Greek. In other words, what's that mean is you have no part in this. It's something that somebody does for you. You're just kind of passive about the whole thing. Only God alone can free us from the bondage of sin. It's not a joint project where he gives us a boost and then we contribute our share. It doesn't work that way. That's why he says in verse 17, who does he thank? But thanks be to who? God. Why? Because God's the one that did this. God's the one that gave us our salvation. He doesn't say, thanks be to God, but you guys deserve some credit. (laughs) You know, you've kind of figured it out and, you know, you did the prayer thing and you're trying to live. No, he said, no, thanks be to God. As a matter of fact, Paul even goes further in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says that, that we are saved because God chose us as what? The foolish, the weak, the lowly, the despised sinners. That he might shame the world's wise, mighty, and the exalted. So that no one may boast when they go before the Lord. Salvation is totally God's doing, not ours. Secondly, the way God changes us is by bringing our mind, our heart, will into submission to his word. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a chapter in his book, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures. He says, I can only skim the surface, so I, I, refer, to, I refer you to this, his many excellent insights that I have gleaned from. First, note that God changes us by bringing our minds under the teaching of his word. Scholars debate over why Paul says form or example pattern of teaching rather than teaching. But it is teaching. He's referring to the kind of teaching that he set forth here in Romans. Um, but God does not just change our minds to conform to sound, date, sound teaching. He also changes our hearts. I mean, there's a lot of scholars, biblical scholars that sit in seminaries that can dissect the Hebrew and the Greek and tell you everything you need to know about the Bible But they've never been converted. (laughs) They've never been touched in the heart. They've never been transformed by God's holy power. Jonathan Edwards says this, True religion in great part consists in holy affections. In other words, God changes our hearts and our desires. Thirdly there, the teaching is not committed to the Christians. You notice that in verse 17. He doesn't say, oh, here, this teaching, I'm going to commit it to you. No, he says, but rather the Christians are committed to the teaching. It's not the teaching that's committed to the Christians. It's the Christians that are committed to the teaching. Um, The old King James says it that way, and unfortunately it's wrong. It says, to which you were committed. And that lines up with what Paul is telling us. That we bring ourselves, our thoughts, our minds, our actions under the authority of God's word. That's why when someone stands behind this pulpit on a given Sunday, they're opening up God's holy word and they're telling you, hopefully, what it says. They're not up here, you know, telling you Mary had a little lamb, its fleece was white as snow. That's not going to do you any good. Fourthly, when God saves you, he frees you from sin and makes you a slave of righteousness. I'm not going to belabor this point. It's right there in the text. Verse 18, and having been freed from sin, you became a slave of righteousness. Something that was done on your behalf, it's not that you did it. So it's your state. So either you are enslaved to sin or you're enslaved to righteousness. And this is not true of just the people who had some dramatic experience at their salvation. This is true of every Christian who is truly born again, who is truly saved by the blood of Christ.
I'll close with this little story about a bazaar in a village in India. And a farmer, he brought this group of quail. And uh, each bird had a little string tied around its foot. And on the other end, to a ring that was kind of on this upright stick that he put in the ground. And these quail would walk around in a circle. They'd just follow each other. they just round, around, around. That's all they do. Because they were held captive by the string. And no one wanted to buy any quail that day. Until later in the day, there was a Hindu Brahmin who came along. And he had a religious respect for all kinds of life. So he said to the merchant, I want to buy all your quail. And the merchant said, really? He said, yeah. Gave him the money. He said, okay, well, how do you want them, you know, packaged up or prepared? He goes, no, I just cut the string and set them free. The farmer kind of looked at him, okay, you gave me the money. So he cut the string. You know what the quail continued to do? And march around a circle. The Brahmin was kind of frustrated. He's like, well, you know, he kind of scooted him away, and they kind of went down half a block and continued around the circle. As if they were still tied to that stick by that string. They were free to do whatever they wanted to do. See, God did not free us as Christians from sin so that we would just keep going and on in the same old circle. Still bound by this imaginative power that Satan wants to believe has dominion in our lives when it doesn't. He freed us from sin so that you could become a slave of obedience to him resulting in righteousness. Remember, beloved, you have to serve somebody. The question is, who are you serving? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it's truth. And sometimes, Lord, it's, it's convicting. And Lord, we pray that we would... Uh, be able to put our arms and our minds around what we've learned. And, and Lord, help us to live a life that is honoring to you each and every day. Lord, you, you've called us to obedience as Christians. There's no excuse. There's, there's nothing we can bring before you to say, well, this was what happened in my life and this is why I do this. No, we're new creation in Christ. All things have become new. All things have fallen away. Everything's become new, and we thank you for that. We thank you that you didn't leave us with an old nature and a new nature, trying to decide which one are we going to believe, which one are we going to listen to. But, Lord, that, that old self is gone. It's buried. It's not going to live anymore. And, Lord, we thank you that you recreated us in Christ, and for the first time we can do what you desire us to do. We don't have to listen to sin, we don't have to obey it as our master because he's not our master. Sin, Satan, is not our master. Christ is if we're truly converted and our allegiance is to obey him and his word. If any here has yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I pray that you would do that work of drawing. Lord, your, your word says that the Father draws us to himself through Christ. I pray that you would do that work, that you would show them their need of a Savior. Pray that they would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me to understand what this man's saying. Help me to understand the salvation that he's talking about. Because I truly want to be free from my sin. Only Christ can do that for you. He'll do that for you right now. If you pray that prayer, if you cry out from your heart, that's a desire, Lord. He will, he will answer that prayer for you. Recreate you in Christ. Father, we thank you. We pray that you would bless our time in the fellowship time afterwards. Bless the food as well. Just uh, give us a good day. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.